0: Hey there, Pastor Allen here. Thank you so much for checking out this message from Praise Assembly. Our prayer is that it is meaningful, purposeful, and that the Holy Spirit speaks to you personally through it. If you find it helpful, would you consider supporting Praise Assembly? Just go out to our website at praise.church and hit the Give Now button in order to support this and other resources we are making available. This message is a part of a series called Idols, Honoring the Giver to Better Enjoy the Gifts, in which we are discussing what it looks like to make sure that God is first in our hearts. May the Holy Spirit use this in your life. Grab your Bibles, open them up to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. If you don't know, we are in a series called Idols. If you didn't catch the quotes as part of the um, as part of the the bumper just leading into the message, uh, we're talking about uh, a big picture discussion, but also specific things that maybe can, in our hearts, take a priority where they shouldn't be taking priority. Um, areas where maybe something gets out of alignment in. Our hearts. And so we've been talking about that for a couple of weeks. Well, really, a couple of weeks ago, we introduced this series. Last week, we had Minhee Lee uh, with us, which is awesome. And I know that uh, you all were blessed by her ministry last week, challenged by her ministry last week. If you missed it last week, go back and listen to it. Uh, It was cold out, and so uh, we had a little smaller crowd last week than we normally have, Um, but I know cold's not going to keep you away anymore. So you are going to be here with us as we keep moving forward, Um, but such a great word. But then the week before, we kicked off this Idol series, and we were talking about a lot of different stuff because a lot of times with Idols, we can think that that's an old problem. That's an Old Testament problem. But in reality, in the Bible, it's very clear that idolatry is something that is an issue of today. Paul talks about it that way. He says, a greed is actually idolatry. In other words, that idea of I need just a little more, that idea that I don't have enough, that idea that just a little bit, just a little bit, just a little bit is actually idolatry. Which means that, that when we say those sorts of things, that I just need a little more to be satisfied, that I just need a little bit more to be secure, that that is, at its core, idolatry. That sometimes there, we can think there's an issue, but as you scratch at the surface a little bit, you realize that there's actually a deeper issue underneath the surface, right? For me, the last several years, I've been having some issues with my back. And for several years, there was even, some of you know, and you've been praying for me. um, Just this goes back three or four years. Um, And there was a Sunday where I was not able to come to church on a Sunday. I called Manny Cordero and said, hey, man, can you preach for me this Sunday? And he brought a great word that Sunday. But I was, the reason why I was not here was because my back had me, I mean, I was laid up in bed. That year in particular, I just said, you know what, I got to do something about this. So I called my doctor and I got a steroid pack. And then I got muscle relaxers. I took the muscle relaxers, and I will never do that again. Because I could not get out of bed. I, don't, I didn't like anything about the way it made me feel. Like it was terrible. So I said, I'm not taking muscle relaxers anymore. But then in March of the next year, I had the same back problem again. And so I went and got another steroid pack. And so I started noticing there was a trend every November and every March. With the seasons changing, I was having this back issue that was literally taking me down for a week or more, and I would take a steroid pack and I would get back at it, and I thought, man, I just must have irritated a muscle in my back, and maybe it's just the weather changes, and then somebody told me, and I've told you this before, somebody told me, no, the problem is you're dehydrated, and I went, no, I'm not dehydrated. Quit being wacko. Like, who, who treats, like, medical issues with water? I mean, come on. <laughs> I just need some good steroid packs, right? So just to prove this person wrong, I decided the next time I had back problems, I was just going to chug a bunch of water. So then I would have back problems and have to really pee. And I was like, and when you can't get out of bed, that could be a problem, you know? So, so I, I just went for it. And miraculously, as soon as my back started going bad, as soon as I drank that water, it was better. I was like, oh. So then I had to apologize and say, boy, I think that's actually what it is. I think I'm dehydrated, right? And then I cut out sugar. And I started eating sugar again just a little bit. And all of a sudden, my back problems started coming back. What actually was causing my inflammation was, in November and moving into December, apparently I was upping my sugar intake. Sugar and not enough water was causing me back problems and for years i was not dealing with the issue i was dealing with the symptom which was the pain and so i kept taking steroid packs when i just needed to drink water and stop eating sugar all i'm saying is that sometimes we can think there's a surface issue and when you get to underneath that that there's a much bigger issue and that's what paul says And that's what he says in Romans too. Just so you know, he calls exactly what we're going through in our culture with our our wild sexual kind of thing that's happening. And he says, all of this stuff is going to happen. And here, let me tell you what's at the root of it. Idolatry. So now you've got two issues. Greed, more, more, more. And sex, where he's saying, hey, the underlying issue here is that there is something out of alignment in your hearts And until you put God in that first place as a culture, as a world, then it's always going to be this way. You cannot fix the symptom without getting to the root of the issue. And he said the root of the issue is idolatry. So idolatry is not an Old Testament thing. Idolatry is a today thing. And for us, we need to make sure that idolatry or that nothing takes that place in our heart. What's amazing about that Romans passage, if you missed it, because I know just the last few weeks there were snow days and ice and all of that stuff, and our brain kind of goes to mush when that happens. But in Romans 1, what he says is when God judges idolatry, you know how he judges it? He gives them over to it. He gives them over to the thing that they want more than anything else which sounds kind of like a reward, not a judgment, right? At first glance, it's like, oh, I really want this thing. And God gives that. And it seems like, oh, that's actually a reward. That's great. Thanks, God. But that's not what he says. He doesn't say he will give you that thing. He says he will give you to that thing. The thing that you thought you were consuming is actually consuming you. Right? So this is the way that he judges. And at first, it seems like you get exactly what you desire. That's great. But in reality, idolatry will always consume you, not the other way around. So that's where we've been. Today, we're going to talk about good as God. Good as God. Good as God. Genesis chapter 22 is where Abraham is heading up to Mount Moriah to sacrifice his son Isaac. (coughs) You've probably read this message before or read this pass it before I know I have, Um, but what I do know is this, that Abraham was one of the most central figures in the Bible, and as part of his life, there was one thing he wanted more than anything else. He wanted a son. He wanted a son to whom he could hand off everything that God had blessed him with. We know that that's the case because it tells us in Genesis chapter 15 Back up a couple pages to Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. Sometimes later, sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision and said to him, Do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you and your reward will be great. But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? Since you've given me no children, Eleazar of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all my wealth. He says, what good are all the blessings you've given me if you haven't given me a son? In other words, in the priority place, in Abraham's heart, it goes a son and everything else. Right? The highest priority for him was, I want a son. And then below that was all the other blessings. All of those other things, he said, totally worthless if you don't give me a son. The thing, the top thing for Abraham was, I want a son, right? That's what you see here. All the other blessings, nothing. The son is worth more than everything else combined. So order of priority, son, everything else, okay? So God promises him a son. He gives him his heart's desire. Now here's the thing. If he has the thing that his heart desires more than anything else, very quickly, this blessing can become a curse, very quickly, the thing that he, he wants more than anything else can end up destroying him. So you come to Genesis chapter 22, where God says, hey, now I want you to give that blessing back. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, I'm just going to read it. Um, love the passage, love the story. And so we're just going to read through right up until about, we'll read up to verse 15-ish, somewhere in there. 22, verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. So when it says that God tested Abraham's faith here, um, there's a couple different ways to read that. Um, one of the ways that a lot of times we read it is that he wants to figure out what kind of faith Abraham has. Luke chapter 16, verse 15, though, says that in reality, God already knows what's in every single one of our hearts. So it's not like God needs to know what is actually happening in Abraham's life, but this is doing something in Abraham. And one of the ways that that word tested is used is when you're testing something in fire, right? And gold is produced as a result. It is the purification process, whereby the thing itself changes. Abraham is being tested for his good. Now, to people who do not know God and do not know how good he is. When they read this passage, it is unheard of that a God would ask for this. Some gods did. Our God doesn't. And so when this happens here, some read this and say, how could God have asked for this? And yet we do know our God is good, and that means that he is doing this for Abraham's good. So he is asking for his son in order to do something in Abraham. Verse 3, the next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey, and he took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him About. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there, and then we will come right back. It's so matter-of-fact, right? Like, it doesn't tell you about Abraham's pain. It doesn't tell you about the questions that he would have had. Is that my microphone? Whole system? Hey, it's back. Awesome. It doesn't tell us about his pain. It doesn't tell us about the questions he would have had, the faith, wondering what, why would God ask this of me. It doesn't tell us any of those things. It just says, matter of factly, God said to do it. Abraham went ahead and did it. He takes his son, his only son, heads off. And he says to those who were with him, his servants, as they're getting close to the mountains, hey, we're going to go, we're going to worship, and then we will come right back. And so there is some sort of faith for Abraham, and talks about this in the New Testament, where he's like, God told me I was going to have a son and that he was going to bless me through the offspring of my son, which means that in some way, I will be coming back with Isaac. I don't know what way that is. I'm going to do what God has asked me to do. But I know that on the backside of this thing, when I come back, Isaac will be with me. This is some sort of a deep faith that I quite honestly would like to say I have, but I've never been in a moment like this. And so I don't know for sure. I hope I have it, but I know Abraham had it because Abraham went through this. And there are people in this room who have had faith moments like this. I mean, even just when I said last week, it means something different when you hear many say, I stepped out by faith when she moved from South Korea to the United States to join the military, not knowing a bit of English, right? It means something different when somebody has been through that to know the quality of that faith. And for Abraham, having gone through this, you know, the quality of his faith. God knows the quality of faith and Abraham knew the quality of his faith. So he says, Hey, we'll be right back. All right. Verse six. I'm going to keep moving. Cause I want to get to um, where we're headed. Verse six. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders, While he himself carried the fire and the knife, as the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. We have the fire and the wood, the boy said. But where is the sheep for the burnt offering? God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son, Abraham answered. And they both walked on together. He says, God will provide provide. He didn't know how God was going to provide, but he knew that God was going to provide. Verse 9, when they arrived at the place where God had told them to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. And then he tied his son, Isaac, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. For now I know you truly fear God. I've heard a lot of people talk about what it means to fear God. God, I've heard some great explanations. I've heard some that I thought, ah, I'm not sure that's spot on, but I've heard some that I went, yeah, no, that, that definitely is a piece of it. I think probably most of those people were sp- right. And I think when you take all of those things together, that it means to fear God. Let me add one thing to the mix. For when you see in scripture, and it says a lot in here, make sure that you fear God. What I would say is, There's this really interesting verse that I was reading even just this week. In advance of today, as I was praying for today, I was reading through the Psalms of Ascent, because I do believe it's a new day at praise, and I was reading these Psalms of Ascent even for Sunday morning, in advance of this morning and praying over this morning and praying for this service and praying for the services to come. And as I was reading through those, I came across one verse in Psalm 130, verse 4, which says this, But you offer forgiveness that we might learn to fear you. Wait, what? You offer forgiveness that we might learn to fear you. Wait, how would his offering of forgiveness cause us to fear him more? Right? It should be, but you judge us so that we learn to fear you, right? Isn't that what you would expect? Or if, if he offers forgiveness, that we would learn to maybe love him is how I would expect the passage to go. But the verse very clearly says, you offer forgiveness with the purpose that through that process, we might learn to fear you. When it says in scripture that we fear God, what I believe a part of it is, at the very least, Jesus talked about in in ministry. When he was ministering, he said, hey, there are some of you who fear man more than you fear God. And he said, if you would fear God more, you would fear man less. It seems as if there's this inverse relationship between the two, like if you fear man more, you will fear God less. If you fear God more, you will fear man less, right? Like, so you worry so much about what other people think of you that you don't care at all what God thinks about you. But if you care really, really deeply what God thinks about you, then you will care a whole lot less about what other people think of you. So if you are dealing with this, if this is a struggle for you, that you are like a people pleaser and you're like, man, no matter what I do, I worry and I care and I'm constantly thinking about what everybody else thinks of me. What Jesus seems to be saying is don't focus on doing that less. Focus on worrying far more about what God thinks of you. And if you do that, then what will happen naturally is the other one will decrease. You'll care a whole lot less what other people think about you if you care a whole lot more what God thinks about you. And that's what I believe it means to fear God, to have God in the first place of your heart. Now, I think there's a whole lot more to it than that. But I think at its core, it is caring what God thinks of me more than anyone else. That's what it means to fear God, to have him in that place in my heart. And so when God looks at Abraham here, or Abraham has received the very desire of his heart, the thing that he wants more than anything else, and God looks at that, you could see the potential for the very thing that he has desired more than anything else to in some way destroy Him. Have you ever seen that happen? Somebody who loves their child so much that even their love for their child and the way they put that child in a specific place in their life can actually destroy everything. It can destroy the marriage. It can destroy relationships with other people. It can destroy self-awareness. It can take everything if you get something that is a good thing and put it in the place of God, right? So here in for Abraham, God is like approaching it and he says, I want you to give back to me the very first thing or the best thing that I have ever given you. But here's the problem. It's not drag and drop. Like for me, I don't really know most of the time what's in that highest priority spot in my heart. I can think, man, I think it's God. I think more than anything else, I care about that. And, and one of the ways I think that we can realize whether or not something else has taken his spot is what is your emotional reaction to certain things, right? Or just the, op- I was reading uh, Psalm 131, even right after Psalm 130. I love this. It talks about, some, it won't be on the screens because I was just reading this this morning. It says, Psalm 131. Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I don't concern myself with matters too great or too awesome for me to grasp. Instead, I have calmed and quieted myself. Like a weaned child who no longer cries for its mother's milk. Yes, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord now and always. He says... God is in that place of what calms and quiets my soul. This is a really great question. What do you use to calm and quiet your soul? Do you use distraction? What do you use to show yourself that you are significant? What do you use to remind yourself that you are safe. What do you use to be justified in your own mind? Because the things that you use there, if they are not the promises of God, are idolatry. So if you start feeling anxiety and turn to Netflix to entertain it away, or if you cannot fall asleep because you are so full of fear or other things, unless you are listening to music. If it is anything other than God, for those things that God himself has said, I meet this need in you, that is idolatry. (coughs) For him... If Isaac remained in that place in Abraham's life, it could have destroyed him. And as we talk about idolatry, these are not bad things. These are good things that have become God things. And we need to make sure that the right thing is in the right place at the right time, in the right way, in our hearts. And this takes work, and it takes self-awareness, and it takes praying about it and saying, God, what is out of alignment in my heart? And then putting those right things in the right place in the right way. Okay? So, I'm a fan of technology. Big fan of technology. Okay? I'm the guy who replaces perfectly good lights in my house with lights that I can command with my voice. Just because I can command them with my voice. And I can say, hey, Siri, turn on the garage. oh, it did it. And I could say, hey, Siri, turn off the garage. And it turned them off. I love that. That's great. I drive an electric car. And every time one of you posts some dumb post about how electric cars are going to destroy the world, I roll my eyes at you and I chuckle and say, you have no idea. I love electric cars. I love driving my Tesla. I don't care if people hate me because I'm driving a Tesla. I still will drive a Tesla. I'm a fan of technology. I have speakers all over my house. And then again, I can control with my voice and I can turn on whatever music I want at any point. And I can say, I wanna play worship all through the house and it'll automatically turn on worship all the way through the house. I'm an Apple guy. I use Apple iPad. I use an Apple MacBook Pro. My wife has another uh, MacBook, and I my kids have a MacBook that they share. I have lots of digital devices. I embrace ChatGPT. I use it all the time to accomplish tasks that I don't have the time to accomplish. There is like one physical book in my life. That's it. I don't like physical books. Other pastors have libraries where they have shelves that they put the libraries on. For me, I have the Logos Library System. And I have spent thousands of dollars on so many commentaries you would not even imagine it all. But it's all digital. I have nothing physical to show for it. When the end of the world comes, will I be able to study the Bible? I sure hope so. In the meantime, I'm certainly enjoying it. I love technology. I have a little fob in my car that tracks whether I'm driving good or bad. And some people have said to me, oh, that's the end of the world. And I'm like, okay, I like it. That's all right. (laughs) You know what's really nice? I do have to read physical books for my doctorate. But what's really cool about it is if I see a passage I really like or there's a quote that I want to keep, I can take my phone with the notes app and I can just scan it and it will take all of the text out and save it along with the page number and so that I can refer back to it in the future and it's all searchable. I love this type of stuff. This is fantastic. I use my phone in order to record videos because at this point this thing can record apple prores 422 and it can do it on a separate hard drive super i mean it's incredible the entire like ability of this stupid phone to record video i used to ha- we used to have cameras that were thousands and thousands of dollars that this phone legitimately has totally replaced i love the fact that there are some people who are joining online right now I love the fact that when people are traveling, they can join. I love the fact that there are some who cannot leave their home who are still able to be a part with us. And I'm not going to make them feel guilty for being at home when they cannot get out of the house. Now, I hope you will come back to church. (laughs) I'm not going to make them feel guilty for it. I love and embrace technology. It is so helpful to me. But this exact same phone which is an incredible gift to me. If things get out of alignment, can start taking from me instead of giving to me. It can take my time from my family. It can take time from my kids. It can take from their relationship with Jesus Christ because it has taken me. And my time with my family has got to be of utmost priority for me. I looked at Bill Belichick, one of the greatest coaches in the NFL history, right? He quits, he's replaced within a week. They move on from him. Nick Saban, one of the greatest coaches in the history of college football. These guys were working 120 hours a week on average. Nick Saban was replaced within 24 hours. Your job will move on from you tomorrow. But your family will need you forever. And so there's got to be priorities. And the very thing which is a gift to me can take away from me if it gets out of alignment. I shared with you that I don't bring my phone into my bedroom anymore. The reason why the Holy Spirit told me, don't do that. So now what I do when I'm in the bedroom is I'll ask Liz if I can borrow her phone. (laughs) I'd like to say I'm kidding, but I really can't. And she yelled at me so hard, so hard. The Holy Spirit said to you? Yes, sweetheart. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. The reason why is I noticed I was scrolling first thing in the morning and last thing at night. You know what statistics say? That three-quarters of the Christians in this room will scroll their feeds before they do devotions in the morning. 73% of Christians scroll before they focus on the Lord first thing in the morning. So the Holy Spirit told me, don't bring your phone over the threshold of your bedroom. And the thing about phones is that they are designed very, very very well. I mean, they are tremendous devices. In fact, I decided I wanted to go on a little archaeology trip, and so I spent this week looking back through the phones in my life, and I dug through the layers of iPhones, right? And so I have a picture for you of the iPhones in my life. My most recent before the iPhone 14 was the 11. I could not find my iPhone 8 It's the missing link in the evolution, I think. Um, I traded it in. That's the only thing I can think of. So then there was, you can see my upgrade schedule right around iPhone 6. I realized I am spending a lot of money on these things. Um, But I didn't didn't have the iPhone uh, 7 or 9 or 10. I just jumped right to the 11. Now I have the 14 Pro, right? And as I look back at all of these, I didn't have the original iPhone. This I actually got from Phil. I remember the first time I saw this, when he said um, the phone cost $599. I went, nobody will ever pay $599 for a phone, right? But I was at Bill and Elvira's house. We were having chicken adobo first time I saw this phone, and I heard this. And I was like, wait, you can touch the screen? That is so cool. This thing is so dinky and dumb, And yet it started a revolution. And it's also cool because just like as I'm digging through the layers, I can also see, you know, like the iPhone 6. You can see that that one, it's like what killed the dinosaurs, an asteroid. That one died a a painful death. Um, The others, I think, was probably just they were getting slow or battery wasn't working. But these things are incredible devices. And I love having this device available to me. But they are designed, very specifically, very well. And the apps that you get with them are designed incredibly well. How many of you know who Aza Razkin is? Anybody heard that name before? Aza Razkin was the guy who invented the infinite scroll in 2006. The infinite scroll is the scroll that you never get to the bottom of. You see it on all of your social media feeds. And almost immediately after Razkin invented the infinite scroll, he regretted it. Now he travels around the country and around the world trying to get people to stop using an infinite scroll. The page that you never get to the bottom of. Now people are stuck in what's called doom scrolling. It is scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and never getting anywhere but my phone is for me a distraction when I'm sitting in line. I watch YouTube on it. I read my Bible on it. I use it for notes on my doctoral studies. I journal on it. I use it to pay for stuff. It's the key for my car. It turns the lights on and off in my house. It arms and disarms the alarms here. Praise If I tell Siri to, it would set the alarm, and then it would immediately set it off, like it would, because there's people in it, right? So... Um, It manages my finances and my budget. I shop on it. It takes me away from my family. It shows me whatever I wanted to. At this point, I I actually put my wallet on my phone. It snaps on because it's got a magnet. (laughs) Which is probably a really terrible idea because now if somebody steals my phone, they also get my wallet, but I don't know. It's worked out for me so far. This is, I think in some ways points to what C.S. Lewis referred to as the routine of nothingness. The routine of nothingness. He called it that in his screw tape letters. Here's how he defined the routine of nothingness. It's the strategy that eventually leaves a man at the end of his life looking back in lament, saying, I now see that I spent most of my life in doing neither what I ought nor what I liked. Whew. I say that again, I now see that I spent most of my life in doing neither what I ought nor what I liked. The routine of nothingness is the constant pulling of the lever on a slot machine to get one more hit. This is what happens when good becomes a god. I don't think an iPhone is an idol, but I think it feeds to me all of the things that I might want to worship. And so I need to make sure that this thing Is put in its proper place. I told you I was going to challenge you as part of this series. Here comes the very first challenge. You ready for it? Here comes. You're going to love it. No phone February. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go! We got this. Month of February, no phones. Bring them. Let's just put them at the altar. Right here. We'll smash them all like we used to do back in the 80s with CDs. Any rock bands? Smash them. No, we're not going to smash your phone. I, I, not the, okay. Now, if God asked for it, because I know what your first response was. Yeah, no way. No way. Did you know that there's a company, KY3 actually had an article somebody sent it to me yesterday. Um, there's a p- company that will give you $10,000 if you detox from your cell phone, your smartphone for a month. Search KY3, check it out. You can figure it out. It's like a yogurt company. I don't know what those, but they're like, hey, we got a problem in the US. And so they decided to do that. Okay, so here is no phone February. Here's the challenge. No phone February. First, I'm going to ask you to figure out how much time you spend on your phone. Step one is sign up to participate, but track your screen time for this next week. Not just you, but your whole family, your whole household. If you've got roommates, you're in college. Ask roommates to do it along with you. Like they'll look at you like you're an idiot, but ask them to do it anyways. If you don't know how to track screen time, um, we actually got some helpful guides for you so that you can figure it out. In fact, there's a text message that's about to be delivered to everybody's phone in five, four, three, two, one. You'll get the text message. Did anybody leave their phone on? Impressive work. If you don't get it, that's probably your fault. Um, So, (laughs) but track your screen time for a week, okay? Also, you can find the link in the message notes this week. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Track your screen time, the screen time of everybody in your house. Then pray about it together and figure out what level of involvement you want to do. Because I understand that this is a big ask, okay? So we even gave you three helpful levels to figure out what level you are up for doing, okay? So I'm going to share those with you now. No phone February has three levels. You have to decide. Pick a path. Choose one. Level one, the casual hero. Okay? Decrease screen time after you log it for a week. Decrease your screen time by 10% as a whole family. So every, every week you have to add up the, the average daily screen time for your whole family Decrease by 10% and then set up no phone zones at home, wherever those might be. Maybe your dinner table for me. I would definitely recommend bedrooms. I just think that should, there shouldn't be a single cell phone in a bedroom, but that's me. I know you use it as an alarm clock, but they have these things called, what are they? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's, what did you say? Alarm clock, yeah. So, um, no phone zones at home and then do the weekly mystery challenge. Huh? That's level one, casual hero. Level two, the brave heart. Slash your screen time by 25%. Set up and maintain those no phone zones. Enjoy a phone-free Sabbath each week. One day a week where you put your phone away and do not look at it. Okay? You can answer it if it's ringing, but not if it's a text message. Okay? All right. A phone-free Sabbath each week. And then tackle the weekly mystery challenge. Ready for level three? Level three, the digital ninja. Go all out with a 50% cut in screen time. Set up and keep no phone zone sacred. Embrace a weekly phone Sabbath. And centralize all of your chargers to one spot in the home. And then conquer the weekly mystery challenge. Okay, you got three levels. So talk about it, pray about it as a family. Participate with us in no phone February sign up for it because every week what we'll do every week at the beginning of the week We'll send you that weekly mystery challenge And then every week at the end of the week We'll send you a text message in order for you to give feedback on how it's going so to log your screen time And to tell stories of those things which took the place of What used to be screen time Okay wow you guys are super in with me you're with me this is gonna be awesome All right, well, here it comes. Best part, wait, there's more. As you log your time, listen, um, we do want to hear those stories. And as part of that, to kind of celebrate and challenge along with you, uh, to one family, maybe more if they send us more devices, but to one family at least who lean into this, go all in, do it together with us, share their stories, do the screen time, do the whole thing, we are giving away what's called an RO device. If you don't know what this is, goro.com. You can see um, this plus two years of service for Aro, which essentially it's a, it's a whole system to kind of gamify the putting the phones away when you're at home thing. Okay, it's a really very cool system. This is a great value um, altogether uh, for, for a two-year service plus the device. It's like $300 value. We're going to give to one family. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now you're with me. Okay, cool. So check it out. Sign up today. Hey, wait till we get to the money challenge. (laughs) And the challenge on sex. Think we're getting in your business now? You have no idea. (laughs) Hey, but lean in. Do it, okay? Check it out, pray through it, talk about it as a family. There's a whole uh, page set up on our website. You'll see the link if you haven't gotten it yet. Text message should get out to you. If not, if you don't get it, find out why. But go to the message notes, and there's a link in the message notes. I'll also be emailing out in my email this week a link to it as well. Here's what I'm going to ask. Not Okay, this this isn't about cell phones. This is about the moment you remove something all of a sudden, you find out what's really going on in here, right? When, when you're not deadening with YouTube videos or with Netflix, some of the anxieties that can rise up or questions about, do I have security? Am I justified? All of that comes to the surface. And so what this really is about is taking February to figure out what's really happening in here. And I love my cell phone, and I will not give it up unless God tells me to. I'm going to keep using it because it's a tremendous tool for me. But I want to get a handle on it, and I want to put it in its place. That's what I want, okay? So I do challenge you to think about this, pray about it as a family, and then participate together maybe roommates, whatever that looks like for you, um, because we do want to see God be of primary importance in our hearts. Cool? And here's how this works. Removing idols sometimes is painful. I don't know what you really thought when I said no phone February. Were you like, man, <laughs> come on. I use it for too much stuff. There's no way. My great-grandma, she would... She can't contact me every moment. I don't know what will happen. Like, but I wonder what do you think Abraham really thought when God said, Give me Isaac? Like, do you think that was an easy decision for him to go, Oh, yeah, God, here's my son? But the moment something takes a place of idolatry in our hearts is the very moment when we stop. Paying close attention to it, that's not the right way to say it. It's really hard to get it out. And it's like making sure God is in that first priority place in our hearts is not something where you just say over and over and over again, God, you're, you're most important. God, you're most important. There has to be something else we do. And I, I think the way that works is that we have to start reminding ourselves of how much he loves us and how much he desires us and how much he pursues us. And even when you read the story of Abraham and and Isaac, and it comes to the end of that story with verse 13, or the angel says, don't lay a hand on the boy. Verse 13 then says, Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Abraham named the place Jehovah-Jireh, yahweh Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. In these exact same mountains, many years later, another father would bring his son. And that son would be sacrificed. And there is no one who would speak from heaven on that day and say, stay your hand. But that son died for us. And he died because our God so deeply loves us. The Lord will provide The Lord did provide. And the problem is, when we take our security or our significance or our justification in anything but him. And that's really what we're talking about with idolatry. All of those things that we look somewhere else, a little bit more, that will give me security. No, no. The thing is, you are deeply feeling the need for security in your heart, and that was designed to be met in the fact that Jesus Christ died for you. And until you make sure that that is the thing you cling to more than anything else, then it will always be out of alignment in your heart, and the very good things that he has given you can consume you, will destroy you. That's what idolatry is. And so this morning, I'm going to invite you to stand with me today. (coughs) God loves you. God saw Abraham's sacrifice and said, now I know that you love me. Now I know that I am a first priority for you. Now I know how deeply, deeply you look to me. And when we look to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we can say, now I know. Now I know, God, how deeply you love me. Now I know how valuable you have made me. Now I know you care. And if you are in here right now and you have not accepted that sacrifice for your own sins, he made that for you, for you to be justified, for you to be made whole, for your sins to be washed away, for you to be secure, for you to know that he is God and there is no other, for him to have first place in your life. And if you have never accepted that for yourself, I will tell you right now, you will never find anything else that will satisfy. Number one. Number two, you will never find anything else that can pay for your sins. Number three, you will never find anything else that can provide salvation. He is all the hope we have.